you're having a fantastic day and a wonderful week. Welcome to another episode of We Aren't Dead Yet. I'm Emily Armstrong, creator of the TTRPG system Quests and Quarrels, as well as the settings Beckettville, Culinary Punk, and Elder Space. I'm here with Dazzle Cat. Hello, I am Dazzle Cat. I am the creator of the TTRPG Meaty Bones, as well as the worlds of Pangorio and Hypnosium. I am here with Sapa. Hi there, my name is Safa Burnell. I'm a best-selling cyberpunk and mythpunk author and an editor for a small press. I've been in the fiction sphere for more than 15 years. And I'm going to remind everybody today, don't worry, there's always something we can do. Because we aren't dead yet. Good news, everyone but Emily. Avatar The Last Airbender is coming out on February 22nd. The live action Avatar The Last Airbender done by Netflix. I am hoping against hope. I am hoping with everything in my body that it's another One Piece. One Piece was amazing. The live action One Piece that was on Netflix is fantastic. If you have not gone and seen it, go and watch that television show. It was incredible. I am very excited by the Avatar The Last Airbender live action that's coming out on Netflix on February 22nd, 2000. And 24, I made the little jab just because, you know, not everything is for everyone and certain people like certain kinds of media and other people don't. I know Daz and I are pretty damn excited by Avatar The Last Airbender. Emily could never get into it, apparently. I'm actually kind of glad that we don't all love it because it, again, it's that difference of perspective. Yeah, I think it's, I had a friend at the time who kept like really pushing me to watch it. And when somebody really pushes me to do something i'm like no i'm never gonna do that ever in my entire life now so i've like sort of been waiting for that to pass and it has just never passed i I will say i'm sort of in the emily camp and that anime has i've never really appreciated anime i really liked the story though and the story kept me despite me not really being a big anime fan so first off i have to stop you on one point there daz Avatar The Last Airbender was created by Nickelodeon. It's not an anime. The art style is still fairly representative of North American cartoons of the time period in which they're found. But a lot of people confuse Avatar The Last Airbender as a work of anime just because of the subject matter, the amount of martial arts, and the focus on fantasy versions of Asian cultures. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Nickelodeon has allowed this to take place. I am looking so forward to Avatar The Last Airbender's live action, especially after seeing the trailers. I think they did a fantastic job of casting. I think that it's about time we saw Sokka and Katara as indigenous actors and actresses. Like, I think it's time. And I think that what they've done with that is just incredible I love seeing the people that make up the show and how they talk about it and how excited they are and how much they look like they live and breathe these characters. So freaking excited. Gordon Cormier as Aang and, you know, this fearless, easygoing character, lots of martial arts. I've seen this person perform just, you know, when I started researching when the show cast came out and I'm very confident that he's going to be able to do an excellent job of Aang. And uh, Kia Wentio is playing Katara, Ian Usli as Sokka, Dallas Liu as Zuko. I mean, come on. That's going to be fantastic. 
Daniel Day Kim as Fire Lord Ozai. If anyone can take over from Mark Hamill's voicing of Fire Lord Ozai, it's Daniel Day Kim. He is luscious. He is wonderful. He actually was in the animated Avatar The Last Airbender. He played a couple of bit characters in some episodes. So he's part of both. Oh my gosh. It's so perfect. Paul Sun Young Lee as Uncle Iroh. I mean, come on. Come on. If you have seen The Mandalorian, if you have seen Kim's Convenience, you have seen, uh, last one laughing, Canadian edition. Hmm. You've seen Paul Sun Young Lee, and I am so excited to see him in this beloved role. I named my dog Iroh because of Uncle Iroh. I'm so excited. Elizabeth, you as Azula. Oh my gosh. It's going to be so good. I'm still looking forward to it now that I know it's coming out. This episode is obviously, you know, being recorded several weeks in advance. And so I have yet to see it. I'm sure there will be a news item in the future where I, it's just me squealing like a little schoolgirl going, ah, ah, you know, because I'm so looking forward to watching it. And uh, yet I understand that that thoroughly places me inside the martial arts action geek that I am. <laughs> I am looking forward to it. Anyone want to do a watch party? Let's sing about bossing say and yell about our cabbages. I'm so excited. I love the show so much. Well, it looks like it's going to be really good. Fingers crossed. <laughs> All right. So last week we talked about the history of female villains and how they progressed in media over the years. Today we'll be discussing how we write our villains and going over some of the most popular tropes from femme fatale to mother knows best. I know all three of us kind of come from different backgrounds and use different approaches when it comes to fleshing out our villains. So what's your big focus, Daz? I myself write uh, adventure fantasy, and so my villains and villainesses are built more for that. And so they're the ones that are reactionary plot that my protagonists are reacting to. And so that gives me a different focus for my villains as well. So when you say reactionary plot, what do you mean? They're mainly reacting. They're not creating a, a situation. They have to go defeat someone because somebody is doing something. And so they're trying to counter what that one is doing. Yay, we're the heroes. We save you. Now that does make me think a lot of basically your specialty, which is TTRPGs and being a game master. And so having protags that are reacting to all of these evil things of the villains, I mean, I'm always more fascinated by your villains because they are so fleshed out and they are so purposeful and they are so active in everything they do that it's incredibly thrilling. Reading a Tess Bishop villain is just fantastic because you get this incredibly fleshed out being, whether it's a demon tree, a lich king, or, you know, a tiny little lizard person who steals people's livers when he heals them. I find it fascinating that in adventure fiction for you, it's about making the force that the protagonist reacts against instead of making something that tries to specifically defeat the protagonist. They're out there trying to do their thing and the protagonist is coming along and derailing all their plans, making them come up with new plans, and then becoming, okay, well, who the heck is doing this? They find that out, and then, then they get really mad, and now it's become, it's become personal to the villain. But it doesn't become personal to the villain for much later time. Not for a while. 
it doesn't become personal until they realize that, hey, that's the same person that keeps, what the hell? What the hell, man? Come on. It's like, the protag's like, I'm going to go after this vast evil, the vast evil. Who the fuck are yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know, it's so different. But adventure, adventure fiction, especially something that's close up with Pangorio, I think you could call it a little closer to high fantasy. When it comes to adventure fantasy, I think having that big overarching villain who's like, who the fuck are you? Like, what is this, Stan? Stan, really? Like, go home, Stan. No, my name's Fox. Yeah. Who? (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing this for? Like, why are you in my grill? I don't even know you. Like, it's that sort of interpersonal relationship that you get with some villains, especially in a lot of more modern literature, isn't there. (laughs) It has to grow over time because the heroes are like, well, time to get up and our plucky selves and start defeating evil. And the evil's like, who is this? <laughs> yeah. That, that, who are you? That's exactly how I, how I have my, my villains. Cause the villain really needs to react to who the hell is screwing with their plan. Because the villain has their own ideas. They're like, okay, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to get ABC. And then it's all going to be great in the end for the villain, not for everybody else for the villain. And then all of a sudden, somebody starts throwing wrenches in the mix, and it gets a little crazy. As opposed to something like in the Judge of Mystic saga, my villains that I created in this myth-punk world are incredibly personal. They are incredibly personal villains. You've got Cormac, you've got Stana, and you've got Delilah. Delilah is the most personal to Caleb that you could possibly get. Shout out to Book of Rebels, which is coming out <clears throat> amount of time from now, where you really get to dive into Delilah's villainy and why she is such a villain in the femme fatale succubus range, obviously, and the bad mother range. You need to get both of those. But with Stana, she comes into the situation, an unknown element, but personally attempting to attack Caleb and everyone Caleb knows and loves. Because in her mind gods are the worst thing to ever happen to humanity and the only way to free humanity so that it becomes what it needs to become for itself is to kill all the gods and so she goes and tries to do it and she's got a magic book that just so happened to come into her hands and now she's going for it and so by the first interaction that her and caleb have she becomes a nemesis yeah, I still feel like I'm learning how to write villains, so I'm glad we're having this little chat and I can kind of soak up some of your knowledge. For me, I like my villains to play on fears, both of the audience reading and of the protagonists or those they love and protect. Uh, this probably ties back into having a why for your villain or a purpose. And having that purpose either scare or threaten the protagonist or, you know, the consequences of that purpose scare or threaten the protagonist. I have some bit part villains in my short stories as introductions to the larger, scarier big bads at play in the universe of Elder Space, but I purposefully don't develop them further in my short stories for multiple reasons that other stories may or may not go into. One of the things I struggle with in writing cosmic horror is the balance between information the audience has to know and what they want to know. 
and giving them enough without leaving things too open. This is a topic I want to delve into further at another date, but today I really want to focus on how we've developed our villains for our worlds. And I know I've spent the last few years getting involved in the TTRPG sphere as a player and a world builder, but I haven't really dipped my toe into game mastering. And I'd love to hear a little more about how to tackle villains and your reaction method, Daz. Adventure fantasy, adventure stories, uh, adventures for uh, your tabletop role-playing games. You all have to have the villainous be somebody, somebody that the other characters are reacting to, whether it's to them directly or to the minions that they're sending out to do things. Whatever it is, the villainous is making your plot. As a game master, I find this is the easiest flex of all because that is your job. As a game master, it is up to you to make all the little plot points that the players who are role-playing their characters are encountering and getting through. Even if they go sideways and do something you didn't plan, you have to come up with a way to keep them seen to the main plot, but still doing their own thing. And so your villainous has to be that one that is in charge of that. So the first thing I do when I want to create a villainous and, and have an adventure or an adventure story is I don't even really think too much about what the story is. I embrace the villainous in my mind. And the first thing I have to figure out is what is her essence? And in order to build her essence, I have to build several points about her. Like, what does she do? Does she have a career? What is that? How does she present herself to others? Is she hiding her villainy? Is she showcasing it? You know, is she coming out? I'm the all powerful queen of the night and blah, blah, blah. And that is a very key part, and that's the first part I, I need to build. And the next thing you have to figure out, what is her goal and her, her motivation? What does she really want to do? I want to rule the world! But in the story, she can't rule the world until she first rules what? Maybe she has to take over a town. Maybe she has to take over this corporation to give her the power to get to the next step. She has to start somewhere. So in the story, she's starting I'm going to take over the corporation or she's in charge of the corporation and she's trying to make a conglomerate, a monopoly, that type of thing. So that's how you divide from the story goal and her motivation. Keep in mind the depth in, in her ambition. Develop multifaceted motivations for your female villain that go beyond the traditional tropes. Explore her ambitions, her desires, her experiences that have shaped her worldview. That'll give her depth. In her character. And another thing you want to keep in mind is her attitude. Define her distinct personality traits that sets her apart from others. Is it cunningly intelligent? Is she charming? Does she, ha does she have a dark sense of humor? Is she ruthless? All these traits that are parts of her. There's also subjective morality. Challenge her traditional notions of good and evil by giving her a subjective moral code. Maybe she believes she's justified in her actions, introducing moral ambiguity into, into her story. Allow for the evolution of her moral compass throughout as she's planning and plotting, and this growth or regression adds a dynamic element to her character arc. And that's another thing. Her arc 
is built into the plot, and it's usually a counter song to the heroes. And another thing about her essence is what is at stake if she fails to achieve her story goal? Will she find ruin, death, prison? What is it? What is at stake is behind her driving her in this particular moment in this story? Survival, pursuit of power, this will add layers to her villainy and make her more relatable, or at the very least, understandable beyond her essence, is does she have minions or hireling? Does she have any kind of assistance? If so, their quality and quantity will reveal the economic and social status of her. Does she have to hide in the sewers? She's being so hunted. Or is she the CEO of a, of a, of a company? And so she, her agents are being paid very well to go out and do whatever she needs. And any point in between. And whether she has minions or not will absolutely determine how she does things. Because if she doesn't have any minions, then she is on her own. So she is the one who has to get down and dirty and really be at the, at the knife edge of her plot. So she is going to be the one who is going to be directly driving that dagger into whatever the finale that she's going for. She is going to be the one getting in there. So that will help you create a different vibe for her. Or if she has minions, the more she has, the more she can hang back in the shadows and directing her minions to do things underhandedly while she portrays herself, you know, as she's the front face of her company. Yay, all smiles. Buy my cookies. While these are people are going around and stealing all your your gold or whatever. I'm stealing all the chocolate to make the best cookies. You will have no other chocolate but mine. <laughs> I'm thinking of Mom for Futurama. I was literally about to say that. Are you referencing Mom from Futurama? <laughs> Would I do that? I mean, I have no idea. Of course not. Oh, the Futurama. innocence. Ah. <laughs> I would like to point out one of these type of in the shadow type of villains. I I really I, I really believe in this in this character it was pretty well fantastic. If you ever watched the movie Art of War with Wesley Snipes and his boss Eleanor Hooks. If you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry. This is a big major spoiler. Because you go through the whole movie, she's his boss. She's giving him all the facts he needs to try to solve what's going on. And it turns out she is the big bad guy of the story. And the reason it was called Art of War, is it's even referenced in the movie, is the very best pawn or agent is the one who never knows that that's what they are. She was using him and and, and going to kill him off in the end. But he ended up winning. She was an awesome villainess. You didn't know it right away. You started to see little cracks and things. And you're like, wow, she's a pretty ruthless leader. Maybe she's going to do something pretty bad. At yeah, she did. There was just enough there to give you a hint that she's shadowy and dark. But, you know, this is kind of like an agency of agents. And they did, you know... A, Killing and shootings and stuff like that. So maybe she's just an, an agent. Whatever. No, no. She was a bad guy. It was really thrilling getting off the uh, Eleanor Hunt bubble thing. Another thing to note is, especially if you're writing a TTRPG adventure or an adventure type story, her plans are the plot. Your villainess's plans are the plot. They are the reason the heroes, the protagonists, whatever, 
are reacting to. They might not even know that that's her in the beginning. I mean, so you got like mini bosses. And so you think that, that they're the bad guy, and then there's the little twist. And oh no, this is the true villainous. And that's kind of how Eleanor Hunt worked in The Art of War. Your villainous is the mistress of the plot, the crafter of conflicts, the setters of traps, and the maker of all the troubles. And that's how I approach writing my villainesses. Thank you, Jazz, for that wonderful look on TTRPGs and creating a villainous uh, with something like an adventure that you can take a group of collaborative storytellers through around your kitchen table or your internet connection. I'm going to start looking at tropes in fiction that we can make complex nowadays. These are tropes that have their superficial aspects, but we can also take them and make them more complex so we get that luscious slightly gray area sort of character that really sticks to the marrow of the bone. Let's go. All right, number one, we are going to look at the Dark Slash Ice Queen, a character who is emotionally distant, aloof, and often portrayed as cold and unfeeling. This is a negative to what I was talking about in archetypes the last time. This is the negative of the queen archetype, where the queen is that perilous ruler, loyal leader character who searches for connection and searches for advantageous kind of mutual melding together, the Ice Queen separates. She's a female character who rules with cruelty and often has a desire for power, sometimes with a connection to the supernatural. Think the Queen of Hearts in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, a tyrannical ruler who orders beheadings. The Queen of Hearts, too, you have to recognize was somebody that you could see as a satirization of Queen Mary, the sister of Queen Elizabeth I back in oldie times. So you have to kind of consider that too, that some of that is a satirization. So it's a little bit different, but we also have Queen Ravina from Snow White and the Huntsman, an evil queen with a desire for eternal beauty and power. And it's that desire for power and that ability to kind of break connection and use cruelty to maintain what they have that really brings in that Ice Queen, that Dark Queen kind of character. You also have the White Witch from the Chronicles of Narnia. She was the queen of her own universe. That's the thing that you have to recognize. A lot of people start with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which case she is the White Witch who brings Eternal Winter to Narnia. But she had an origin story that we see in The Magician's Nephew, where she was a ruler of this one cosmos, this one universe, where upon realizing she was going to lose in battle, decided to speak the unspeakable curse and completely shut down every single person in her cosmos. She destroys the world because it was better that the world be destroyed than she lose. And she takes that cruelty, she takes that malice into Narnia, attempts to become all-powerful through various forms of magic and through seeking certain fruit that comes from certain trees. If you don't know that motif, I mean, hmm, hello. Well, welcome to Adam and Eve, just Narnia style. <laughs> and she takes the fruit of the tree wrongly. She does not do it to like Diggory did to save his mother's life, but she takes it for her own purposes to become eternal. She takes it just out of malice and that mars her body and turns her into this winter loving creature. 
So the dark and the ice queen is a fascinating look at the machinations that you can get from manipulations oftentimes found outside of sex. And I find this is important because we're going to get to the femme fatale, the femme fatale, the succubus. That is a little bit different because she is using that lover archetype to really manipulate through sex and manipulate through that potential for creation. Meanwhile, the ice queen, the dark queen, she's not necessarily using sex in that way. She might consider herself too good for the people that she could make want her and things. She's willing to use a little bit of that sensual energy once in a while, like we see with Queen Ravina, but it's more about the power and it's more about continuing to be distant and aloof, which really is the reversal of the queen archetype. A shout out to episode three, which talks about every single one of the seven archetypes that I'm kind of going through today. We have the vengeful spirit next. Now, this is a female character motivated by revenge or jealousy from beyond the grave, often seeking justice for a perceived wrongdoing. I'm going mostly Japanese here. I mean, we do have La Llorona, a weeping woman seeking revenge for the loss of her children from folklore. Uh, But here for me, the culture on the planet that I am familiar with that does the vengeful spirit trope to a incredible degree, and they're just so talented at making this character incredibly complex, going back hundreds, if not thousands of years, are the Japanese. We have Samara from The Ring, which is a vengeful spirit associated with a cursed videotape. If you have not seen The Ring, I thoroughly suggest you watch it. There's two versions. There's the Japanese version, and then there's a version that was kind of Americanized. I've seen both. Both of them keep me up at night. And last episode, I talked a little bit about the Hanya, or female Oni, from no theater in Japan. And Hanya, I'm going to remind you, they are females, they are women in no theater who had something happen to them. Usually, it's some form of heartbreak or some form of grief, either or where their jealousy and their desire for revenge, their vengefulness, their negative feelings, their oppressive grief is so strong, they refuse to let it go. They refuse to take healing and detach from the pain. Instead, they let that pain consume them and they become honya when they're alive. Or if this happens after death, they usually become oni in the no theater tradition, which also comes into things like kabuki theater and also comes into things we know today as anime and manga. It's an incredible part of the genre, this heartbreak, which if you give into that jealousy, if you give into those negative emotions, it will create that demonic force inside. And this is an incredibly powerful trope. This is an incredibly powerful paradigm that you can play with. I see it as sort of a reversal of the mystic. You can have so much fun with it. If you want to see some done incredibly well, I'm thinking personally of one of my favorite anime of all time, Mushishi. Go watch it. It's fantastic. Different episodes have different folkloric elements, but there's definitely some presence of Oni and Honya. Also, you see some of that in Inuyasha as well. And just tons Tons and tons. Oh my goodness. So good. Uh, if you want a more modern representation of somebody who looks like they're becoming that kind of thing, then I would go with Blue-Eyed Samurai. Next, we have the Evil Sorceress, which is a flip of the sage archetype that we were talking about of, say, Athena fame. 
a powerful female magic user who employs her magical abilities for nefarious purposes. Think Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty, this dark fairy who curses Princess Aurora because she was snubbed. You didn't invite me? Oh, well, in that case, I'm going to create difficulty for your entire kingdom. Morgana Le Fay from Arthurian Legends, a sorceress known for her magical mischief, depending on which Arthurian legend you're looking at, whether it's Lamorth Arthur or something a little bit more modern. Also, potentially the sister or half-sister of Arthur in certain versions of that myth. But you still get that scheming magical power using their magic for nefarious purposes. It can be an incredibly powerful. We saw this in the Dungeons of the Dragons movie too, with the uh, Red Witch, whatever her name was. The Red Wizard is Fae. Yeah! <laughs> the evil sorcerers of Matisse is really fun, especially when you separate it from the Ice Queen, when you separate it from some of the other motifs as well. You can create this complexity of really the negatives that we see in a lot of what I would consider Athenian myths. When we look at Athena, specifically in Greek mythology, we are seeing this figure who does things that are not good. And that's the thing about Greek mythology. I think one of the things that helped it just continue over time is the fact that every single character is morally ambiguous. With somebody like Athena, yes, she's the goddess of weaving. She's a goddess of wisdom. She's the goddess of strategy and combat and the olive tree and all of these majestic, wonderful things. Because, I mean, you expect me to cook without olive oil? How dare you? But at the same time, she is also the sorceress who turned Medusa into a monster for being taken by a man. She is also the figure that ran away from Hephaestus. She is also this figure that turned Arachne into a spider. Because Arachne dared be better than the goddess at weaving. You know, so it's these negative parts of that sage archetype, that sort of spite that you see in certain characters when they're supposed to be the best at something. They're supposed to know it all. They're supposed to be the ones in authority. And then all of a sudden, some ingenue comes up and either knows something that they weren't supposed to or are starting to show them up. And that's when usually the sage turns into the sorceress. And you get a lot of that, okay, fine. You don't think I can handle this? You don't think I'm this, that, or the other thing? You think you're going to replace me? I will show you what I know. And that should make people shiver just a little. <laughs> I'm scared. Uh, that brings us into something, too. You know, a lot of the times it's the evil sorceress characters creating the tragic monsters, especially when you look at how mythology over time treats certain women characters. Oftentimes, it is other women who conduct the punishments that create the figures like Medusa, like the Lamia. It is other women who are in charge of punishing this woman for whatever it is they considered she did or whatever she subverted when it comes to traditional gender roles. And so this tragic monster, we've seen this in more recent times when Oh, I don't even want to mention it. Never mind. I just got a little sick. <laughs> so the 3D Beowulf movie. Oh, God. With Angelina Jolie as Grendel's mother. You mean the one that they took us oh. to in like eighth grade for a school field trip? Good Lord. <laughs> I mean, I, okay. For those of you who don't know why I'm shuddering in my chair. I love Beowulf. 
I have many copies of many translations. I also have the extant text myself that I research. I love Old Norse. I love Old English. And they are slightly separate languages with different syntax, and I could get into grammar, but I won't. I remember being told Beowulf stories by my Norwegian grandfather on his knee when I was a little child. Those were my bedtime stories. They are part of my Scandinavian tradition. You know, they are absolutely something that goes down with the sagas and the idas, you know, into my soul. And seeing what they decided to do with Grendel's mother, making her this tragic monster figure, I'm like, I could make more noises, but I won't. I have thoughts. I won't get into those thoughts today. Instead, I'm going to keep it with the tragic monster. So here's where you get a lot of the female characters like Electra Natios from Marvel Comics. She got into it a lot with Daredevil. Um, Maleficent again. You know, basically every single thing I talked about last week in the mythology section, every single one of those ladies. We've got the Lamia. We've got the Medusa. We've got tons of different women that were taken. You know, you could even say that Medea and Clytemnestra belong within this tragic monster sort of feel because even though Clytemnestra was a queen, she still took on that anger based on tragic events that happened. And so when her husband killed their oldest daughter, just so he can travel across the sea and commit warfare, she held on to that pain until she was eventually able to express it. So you have that sense that due to tragic circumstances or a traumatic past, this person became this thing. We see this too with Mystique in Marvel Comics and a lot of her renditions where, you know, mutants were hunted and here's this mutant with blue skin. What's she supposed to do? Uh, the one thing I will say is we've talked a little bit about how traumatic backstories are a bit of a trope in and of themselves nowadays. And it takes a certain amount of tact. It takes a certain amount of accountability as the author to put tragedy and trauma into a character and have it mean something. So you do have to be sensitive. You know, obviously, if you just pack on trauma and think that that covers a host of ills, it's a little bit like dyeing your toys for your kids all beige and going, look at me, I'm now trendy with the TikTok and the Instagram. Like, it's don't do it. Don't be a beige mom. It's overdone, but what it is, is it's the easy out. Well, clearly this person did these things because somebody hurt them. Y yeah. And other people have done good things, even though they've been hurt that bad. Your point? So just be careful with the tragic monster. It works a little bit better with somebody like Medusa, somebody like the Lamia, a little bit less when you're trying to just sort of pile on as much trauma as you can. Like, hold back a little bit. You know, it's kind of like when you decide what to wear in the morning, you know, accessorize and then take something off before you go out the door. Devoted disciple. It's the sidekick. I won't hide it. This is a sidekick archetype. This is, oh, I just love this person so much. I'll do anything for you. It's a female character who is a loyal follower or disciple of a malevolent figure and will do anything. In one way, you could define the devoted disciple a little bit through Bonnie and Clyde. You also have Bellatrix Lestrange from Harry Potter, this devoted Death Eater and follower of Voldemort. And so you've got that sense of disciple, that sense of like, I love you so much, I'll do anything. And this actually belongs in the lover archetype. 
because this character is very closely connected to who they are romantically involved in and how they feel towards that person. And sometimes the deflection of romance into another form of devotion. So it doesn't necessarily have to always be romantic, but it always has to be as devoted as a sort of polluted spousal figure. So you've got Harley Quinn, who is incredibly devoted to the Joker, and then later on through a couple of decades of storytelling, ends up becoming her own independent character. But for the majority of the beginning of Harley Quinn, she was the Joker's a main girl. She was his. Now, this devoted disciple can turn into something even more negative with the jilted lover, a female character who becomes a villain due to a romantic betrayal. So think Meredith Palmer in Swim Fan, think Amy Dunn in Gone Girl. They are both dangerous, obsessive manipulators. Think Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. You know, they develop their own fictions. They develop their own way of trying to keep that love or punish that love for leaving them. And it can be an incredible storyline, but it can also be incredibly prevalent in toxic femininity because we've seen the jilted lover so much since for a vast majority of the last, you know, hundred years, this is the archetype that you see with a lot of men writing women and with a lot of male authors and male creators writing female villains. Well, clearly she was snubbed by a man and that's why she is the way she is. So this is definitely this one. Like last week I was talking about the difference between subverting the tradition of the culture and affirming the tradition of the culture. This is an affirmational villain. This villain naturally affirms the traditional gender roles of whatever culture it appears in because it's affirming that if you don't make the right choice or if that choice goes sour then outside of that safe marital environment she turns into this wicked thing and this is why for me i find it far more interesting when you get the vengeful spirit from you know like no theater you get that hanya feeling you know you get those women that end up turning into these almost demonic people that to me is a little bit more on the interesting side than just the jilted lover. Oh, he doesn't love me anymore. So I'm going to destroy his life. So you go deeper. Is it just about love? Is that really the only thing? What else is there? I find you can combine this with something else and make it a little bit more real. If you want to do the jilted lover, you can just be very aware of how overused it's been. And when something is that overused, it loses meaning. This is another reason why in my streams at uh, twitch.tv slash usurperkings, I talk a lot about certain words that I refuse to use anymore. Just, however, very, like, nice. All of these words that used to have some form of emphasis, very, used to mean, oh, more than the next thing you're going to say. But because we've used them so much, they're just kind of filler. Well, for me, there are certain tropes that end up for a while becoming a throwaway trope. And this is one of them. So I would kind of back off on the jilted lover and I would look instead at the vengeful spirit. And I'd look at that a little bit more kindly. Not to say that there aren't amazing figures within this archetype of villainess. Just that it's something that has been so prevalent. I'm like, yeah, what else you got? This brings us into the big one. The biggin' old biggie. The femme fatale. 
also known as the succubus. A seductive and cunning woman who uses her charm and attractiveness to manipulate others, often leading to their downfall. The negative of the lover archetype in the succubus role is a supernatural female entity that seduces and manipulates its victims, often draining their life force. There's a reason I connected these two up. Just from a sort of physiological aspect, a lot of cultures end up calling that completion a form of drain on their life force. You know, there are plenty of cultures that at some point believed that ejaculate was finite and that it was all part of the life force, that it was part of donating the sense of life. And so the succubus became even more evil because she's taking away that vital essence of a warrior man. She's taking away that sort of vivacity of manhood and to the point where he's just going to have nothing left except to be sitting there in the corner going, yes, dear, what do you need? And then fading away to nothing. A lot of the femme fatale and succubus comes from that aspect in the past. Can there be a femme fatale and a succubus that is outside of the heteronormative view of things? Absolutely. And some are incredibly chilling and amazing. And so I definitely want to affirm that too. This is not just heteronormative. The femme fatale, again, it's that perversion of beauty. It's that perversion of the potential for life. It's that perversion of the instinct to bind to somebody and fall in love. And it's manipulation. It's really an all-encompassing collection of masculine fears of what a woman could be if they didn't constrain femininity the way that they did over centuries and thousands of years. We have Morgan Enzelan from Dark Stalkers, a succubus character in video games. Catherine Trammell from Basic Instinct, a crime novelist, Dangerous Allure. We have Catwoman. I mean, we have Selena Kyle. Come on. From DC Comics, Batman's attractive, on again, off again. Ooh, hello there. How's it going, Catwoman? You know, she's this fantastic figure that lives thoroughly in the gray area. And she's a cat burglar with a tragic past, but also is incredibly manipulative. And then we also have characters like Moretta and Angelica in Afra Ben's The Rover. Now, The Rover is a play from 1677. And I put it in here specifically just to show and confirm that women and basically people have been writing complex villains for a very long time. It's not just a modern thing. And uh, go back to Afra Ben, read The Rover. There's incredible complexity in the way that that play talks about womanhood, about the traditional values of women and the way that it was shaking up during the English restoration after Oliver Cromwell's dust up in history. So the femme fatale is one that's very popular to use because it's another one of those ones, kind of like the Jilted Lover, that's fairly easy to put on. You know, you tell an actress, and specifically an actress, somebody who is playing a feminine role, oh, femme fatale, baby, ooze sexuality, give it to me. Like, let's see it on the screen. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the hip goes up, the lips get pouted, the shoulders going back while one of the wrists is coming out and they're just oozing it and they can just go. They are sauntering. They are a lynx on the prowl. And you can see it really immediately. It's a very quick thing to be able to see. But it's another one of those ones that has been used quite a bit. So what is it that you want to do with this character? Are you just making her a femme fatale because that way you're able to fulfill some form of 
dangerous attraction to somebody that's titivating but could never be part of a stable family unit. That's part of it. You know, you get a lot of people that write femme fatales because they are that wicked sensuality. They are uncensured. They are able to go there and be sexy without the same consequences that would happen over time to women within a traditional society. And so you do get those characters, you know, you have those moments all the way into, you know, like the CW different shows and things like that. See why you're doing it. What is it about the succubus? What is it about the femme fatale that you're interested in? Is it just the sexiness or is it something deeper involved too? If it is the sexiness, that's fine. Um, But if you're not looking for necessary, like overt sexuality with that kind of character, then you can go with an asexual version which is the search for beauty as a negative. Think Cruella DeVille in 101 Dalmatians. You're thinking of women who are taking on that vanity as their sensuality. And it's not necessarily that they're looking for a partner, but they are being very vain. But it all kind of stems from the same thing. Okay, the Dark Mother. This is another one of the gigantos, the Dark Mother or the Wicked Stepmother. We saw this with an explanation of Other Mother from Coraline that Emily did. That was really cool. It's, this is a female character who uses motherhood for malicious purposes, manipulating or harming her children. It's a female antagonist who rejects the nurturing mother archetype, often serving as a central figure in fairy tales. I said a couple weeks ago that the maiden archetype only self-actualizes after some form of loss. And for most Eurocentric folktales, that loss is the loss of the mother or the twisting of the mother. It is a loss to a child when they are not loved and cared for by their parents because parents are supposed to be that nurturing force, that place of safety, that bastion against the cold, hard world in which a child can learn and grow without fear. And it is the most instinctual issue In most storytelling, when you have a parent reject parenthood, it is instinctual. It is going back to the initial humanity of the person. That fact that we spend, you know, 18, 20 years just growing into our bodies. You know, we are not the sort of animals that within a period of months are the same size that we will be in adulthood. It takes years. Thus, that manipulation and degrading of the mother archetype, that manipulation and harm, that antagonism of nurturing is so intrinsic that it's often the stimulus for other villainous archetypes. My mother never loved me, thus I never learned to love. So this is an incredibly powerful one. It is also one that needs to be used correctly. (laughs) You know that you have to be very particular as to why you're putting that in there. And this is usually a combination of lack of nurturing, aka a perversion of motherhood, and the fear of a mother of being usurped by the younger generation, thus being disposable. And now, here's the key to the dark mother and the wicked stepmother stereotype. There is nothing more disposable in a society than a childless woman after menopause. And that has been true for thousands of years. If you only have 10 meals and there's 25 people to feed... Well, you're going to feed the young, you're going to feed the mothers, and you're going to feed the warriors that are keeping you going. The 
old lady over there that has no kids and nobody to vouch for her, she's not getting something unless there's something left. Uh, I know it's an incredibly dark thing to say, but that is just the fact of most cultures over time. And that is absolutely something you have to consider when you look at the dark mother or wicked stepmother archetype, especially the stepmother archetype. A woman who's coming in, this is not her natural child. She turns wicked. She's got her own motives. She needs to protect herself. No one else is going to protect her. How does she protect herself and her purposes? Well, if this young ingenue comes in and needs a dowry, if this young ingenue comes in and is prettier and is fresher and is capable of bearing children and is all of these things, then she's going to get the lion's share of everything. What's that other woman going to be left with? That is an incredible place to put a villain. That is incredible motivation. And it's deep. It goes intrinsic. It is almost universal. So I would very much take a look at that when you're looking at how to create a villain and what is it about motherhood and the perversion of motherhood that makes these characters so terrifying. You see this with Mother Gothel in Tangled, who kidnaps Rapunzel to exploit her magical hair. This is also like the boss bitch of gaslighting. You've got Norma Bates from Psycho, a complex mother-son relationship with sinister undertones. That mother-knows-best trope is a manipulation of the inner fear of being made disposable and irrelevant. And so a female character who uses a maternal facade to control and manipulate others, often portraying a false sense of protection, like uh, Mrs. Coutier in His Dark Materials, or Margaret White in Carrie, they are doing so because they are fighting for relevance within the frame of societies who view certain women as irrelevant. You see this also in the evil queen in Snow White, the jealous stepmother who seeks to harm Snow White because Snow White is too beautiful and thus could usurp her, and Lady Tremaine in Cinderella. This leads us to the evil queen bee, a character who establishes dominance through social manipulation, often in high school or other settings. We get a lot of the evil queen bee in high school because high school is a microcosm of all the things that suck in humanity, but you know, that's just my personal opinion. You see that with Regina George in Mean Girls, a high school queen bee known for her manipulative behavior. You see that with Blair Waldorf in Gossip Girl, a socialite who uses manipulations in the same way. This is a slight perversion of the queen archetype we talked about earlier with the ice queen. And there are a lot of elements of that sort of negative, like dark queen, ice queen in evil queen bee. But the evil queen bee, the difference there is that she's manipulating others to create a series of protective layers around herself. She is not pushing community away like a lot of those ice queens do. She is bringing community in and she's creating manipulative circumstances to keep people there. And then they can do her bidding and then she's safe. She has power. She can maintain that power. She can hold that power with her presence for a certain amount of time. And that way she's not alone. She's not disposable. And she has people around her who would fight to the end. And all of these can be incredibly complex characters. They have also been used as very flat characters. And so really what I think that we need to concentrate on is, as creators is, like I say this a lot, who are you writing for? What's your genre? What is expected? What's the kind of tone that you're going for? You're going to treat something that's grimdark a lot different than you're going to treat something that's nightcore. But also, 
what is it about this person that made them go down that road? Why did they go down that road? What would have been different if they hadn't? You know, when I created Carolee for Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, the novella that's currently in Macabre and Monstrous, absolutely go purchase that book. It's a fantastic horror anthology and everybody should read it. Love you. Mwah. Um, Carolee, I made certain that as she was descending further and further into villainy, she also had moments where she could have turned her life around. She could have chosen a different way. She could have gone a different path. Those paths were available to her. I find for me, it is far more authentic to creating a complex individual when instead of just circumstances taking place and them just surviving those circumstances and then reacting to everything, if everything somebody does, whether it's a villain or a hero, is passive, I'm a lot less interested in that character. That character is just a placeholder. When that character chooses and makes active choices that reflect and change events for themselves and the people around them, I am far more excited by that. So if you want one way that you can liven up your villains and your villainesses, absolutely make their choices that brought them to that place an active choice that they decided to make knowing the consequences not something they tripped into going, oh, my society is terrible. Oh, look, I've turned into a villain. Like, no, I don't want this passive person in my prose that's just kind of there that tripped into this. I want them to know what they're doing. I want that evil queen bee to look at somebody across the lunch table and be like, this is my next conquest. I'm going to make them love me and I'm going to make them do what I need. And that is infinitely more powerful to me. And with that, all you rebels, writers, and gamers, we're wrapping up another mind-bending episode of We Aren't Dead Yet, your go-to for all things TTRPG and Specklet. Stay wild, curious, and keep defying the ordinary. Until next time, hit up Wadi at vredamedia.ca slash Wadi. That's V-R-A-E-Y-D-A-M-E-D-I-A dot C-A slash W-A-D-Y. Like and subscribe, share with your friends, check out our merch store. We'll see you next week for more news, views, and hullabaloos. So keep the fires burning, the dice rolling, and the pages turning. And remember, there's always something we can do, because we We aren't aren't dead yet. yet.